Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Kanisha, and this week, Madeline and I spoke with Jennifer Wilson, Dean of Eugene Lang College and Associate Professor of Mathematics at Eugene Lang College. Dean Wilson loves math and she loves social change, so she's found ways to entwine the two in her work. She studies the ways in which we make decisions and the fairness properties embedded in that, for good and for bad. Voting is a quintessential way citizens make decisions and thus is of particular interest to her. Dean Wilson is deeply interested in plurality versus majority systems and is closely analyzing the recent primaries in New York City, which used ranked choice voting for the first time. Of course, some aspects of ranked choice voting can be approached mathematically, like the spoiler effect, and others can't, like does it deeply impact how candidates approach the campaign? But analyzing it mathematically can help us step back, gain objectivity, and think less about campaigning as a sport and more about the structures we use to make decisions, and then to critique and improve them. A mathematical lens, specifically collective game theory, can also be helpful in analyzing the bandwagon effect. That is, what are the reasons for candidates to support one another as they're gaining momentum, and gerrymandering to produce more or less competitive races? Needless to say, Jennifer Wilson's work and this episode will help you think differently and more deeply about electoral math. Thank you for listening. Hi guys, my name is Kanisha. I'm a rising junior at Stuyvesant High School in New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, was a facilitator with YVote this summer. And today I'm really excited to talk about, you know, a side of politics and political science we don't really get to see a lot. Even at YVote, a lot of what we talk about is surrounding the social movement that has become politics today. And when we're actually, for example, looking at future pursuits like majors like political science, going into fields of study about politics, it's so much more complex than I think meets the eye. So today I'd really love to dissect that. Hi, my name is Madeline and I'm a rising junior at Fort Hamilton High School in Brooklyn, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm a Y voter and a civic fellow here at NGP. And today I am really, really interested in your work, Jennifer, about how math ties into gerrymandering and voting. And it's just a very new concept for me. So my name is Jennifer Wilson, and I am a mathematician at Eugene Lang College, which is part of the New School. I have been teaching at the New School for 17 years, and I have gradually moved more and more into this area, which is sort of an overlap between political science and mathematics. And it's an area I didn't know about for many years. It wasn't something I learned in high school or even in all of my seven years of college education. And I really like thinking about it because you can approach it out of a sort of theoretical interest in mathematics, but also because there are so many really engaging and interesting problems to think about. The way I think about it is I look at the way we make decisions and think about the algorithms or the processes by which we make choices and make decisions, and then think about the fairness properties that are embedded in those and think about what are good fairness properties and what are bad fairness properties.
to give a really basic example, voting is a sort of quintessential thing we do as a society to make decisions. And when we vote for president in this country, we all look at the candidates and then the candidate that gets the most votes wins. And that's what is technically called the plurality system. It's called the plurality system and not the majority system because in theory, you don't necessarily have to get more than 50% of the vote to win. Just looking at that simple example shows that, you know, maybe we want a system where the majority of the voters would prefer their winning candidate or not. So these are the kinds of things that I think about. What made you interested in all of this work? It seems like you really do cover a lot and it's yeah. hard to pinpoint from my perspective how you necessarily got from math to ranked choice voting. When I came to the new school, we don't have a math major there and we offer a variety of different kinds of undergraduate math courses. So from a pedagogical lens, I was interested in finding math courses that would interest students who didn't want to be math majors who were not necessarily even going to be in STEM. We have a lot of students who are activists or interested in politics or just interested in social change in general. And I thought that this would be a really interesting avenue for them. I myself learned about it because I took a workshop through a professional organization, the Mathematical Association of America, and they ran a week-long workshop on the mathematics of voting theory. And that's how I got involved with it. And I met a colleague who had done some previous work in it, and we started to work together. And we've been working ever since in that area. How do you see that, you know, mathematical, analytic, and scientific side mesh with the other side of political science? And how do you hope this might shape what politics looks like in the future? From my perspective, I really like it because it shows students when I teach that um, mathematics is not all what they think about and that it's not just about numbers or crunching numbers or statistics or data, that it really can address sort of more philosophical questions about fairness. And that's one of the themes that I bring up. So I teach classes where I have a lot of political science students in them. And so they might study histories of social movements in the United States or look at specific historical elections. And what I do is sort of take a step back and show them how you can think about the structures through which we make decisions and analyze the way the structures work as another lens with which to critique them. If you don't sort of understand how the decision mechanisms work, it's difficult to make an impact. With ranked choice voting, you know, this is a big new initiative that just started in New York. And I've been really interested in the rhetoric and the arguments that people used in favor of ranked choice voting. So some of the arguments are, it allows voters to express all of their feelings about the candidates. Instead of just listing your favorite candidate, you can list all your candidates in order. And it encourages candidates to, when they campaign, to be less black and white because they're not just aiming for people to support them and vote them as number one, but they also want to gain supporters like in positions two and three and four. So the claim is that people will campaign more broadly and not just to their little ideological base. And then there's other kinds of claims like the method will reduce um, the effect of spoilers. And it's not quite clear what spoilers mean. But I think generally what people mean is that, that you might have um, a candidate who's not likely to win, but then joins the election or becomes a candidate. And then because of their candidacy, it changes the outcome of the election. And so all of these are different ways you can think about ranked choice voting. Some of them can be approached mathematically and some can't. So the question about does it affect the way people campaign 
that's not a mathematical question. That's a question for historians and political scientists and analysts, you know, to look at, well, what really did happen and create a narrative out of that. But questions about the spoiler effect, did it actually change the outcome? These are things that mathematicians can look at. We can look at all of the results of the ballots and we can say, well, if this person didn't run and it hadn't entered and we pretend that that person is eliminated and we sort of run the ranked choice voting process without them, we could see what would have happened. And then we can look at all of the different elections and we could see how likely was that to happen and how does that compare with other methods we've used. So I, I like this kind of example because it shows how mathematical approaches can complement more historical or policy-oriented things. I remember when New York had their mayoral election recently, my parents were discussing with other voter-aged people that are unlike myself about like how weird and like slightly annoying ranked choice voting was. And they were like, what is this weird new concept? What is the point of this? And I was trying to help them understand it and explain it. But you know, I don't know that they just, they just couldn't get it for some reason. And so I'm wondering, how do we know that it truly works? Could be from a mathematical approach or not. How would you define working? I've heard some criticisms of ranked choice voting saying, well, sometimes the ranked choice voter doesn't select the person who got the most votes. And that is precisely the point of ranked choice voting is that the reason why people would adopt it is because they don't like the current system, because the current system, the person who gets the most votes might get the most votes, but they only get maybe 30% of the votes, which is not everyone's ideal situation. So I think everyone has a different idea of what works. And I think that's tricky. I mean, you can certainly talk about, was it easy for people to do? Did they understand the instructions? Did they feel like they could actually rank the candidates. I, I think that's a real concern. When you have many, many candidates, how can you possibly find out enough about the candidates to even reasonably rank them? There's lots of real questions about it. So I, I'll throw that back to you, Madeline. What were your parents' concerns or your relatives' concerns, do you think? I think that uh, there was concern about why change it now if it's, in their eyes, been working. And I think that, yeah, maybe from their perspective, they may not feel like their vote is actually mattering as much as it used to. And that might be more of a concern about like personal rights and whether or not ranked choice voting is taking away their personal right, voting rights or amplifying morality in the sense. And I think that's a kind of a tug of war that we face often throughout politics is like morality versus like personal rights as everything is just amplified over COVID and just amplifies people's emotions as well. Maybe we could think about a little hypothetical situation where you would be voting in a presidential race. And we all know that the, the strongest candidates, it's really going to be a Democrat versus a Republican. But there's always other candidates. There's a Green Party candidate, perhaps, right? Or a Libertarian or something. So if you can imagine, maybe a typical New York voter is confused about whether to vote for a Democrat or a Green Party member. And if they're pragmatic, maybe they feel like they should vote for the Democrat because they feel like if they vote for the Green Party person, it's sort of a throwaway vote. There's sort of a disincentive to vote for what you truly want. So, you know, one argument for ranked choice voting is that you could put the Green Party candidate first and then the Democrat second. And then in the first round of voting, the way the process works, the Green Party candidate would probably be eliminated in the first wave. And then that person's vote or your vote would then transfer to the Democrat. 
So a lot of people like the system for that because they feel like they're not throwing away their vote. Other people feel uncomfortable about it because they feel like people are getting more than one vote. You know, I don't think there's one right answer to this. These are things we can have interesting conversations about. What are our rights? What do we mean by voting rights? And what do we think is fair? I mean, usually when I hear about mathematics in politics, I feel like I never really pay attention to, I guess, like voting schematics that much. But I do like remember for the presidential election on any news channel they had this like map of the u.s up talking about it like it was a game or something like that like they need this many more votes for this state if they win this state the probability of them winning the election is you know and so forth so i'd kind of love if you broke down like the mathematics behind campaigning and what that looks like especially for those larger scale elections or even municipal elections well, I think it sort of depends on the situation, but I, I totally agree. I, I sometimes I get concerned by the way it's treated so much as a kind of sport when the stakes are high. I do think the presidential election is a little different from the local ones, and that's because of the electoral college. We have the system in place. Everyone's votes are tabulated, but then the states, all, each individual state has a sort of winner-take-all sort of property to it, where depending on the winner of the state, all of the state's electors get put into either the Democratic or the Republican camp. And because of that, so much of the presidential race is predictable. As a result, there is intense focus during the campaign and during all of the media coverage about the few toss-up states, the sort of six to 10 states where it kind of swings back and forth a little bit. And I think in terms of the campaigning, I think you're really right to, to sort of highlight that. It's a real problem because huge amounts of campaign dollars and politicians' time gets spent in those states trying to just change two or three percent of the population's opinions. And it really distorts things. I think it makes those of us who live in quote unquote, safe states feel at a disadvantage because the votes are being taken for granted. There are mathematical approaches and political causes to try to not eliminate the electoral college, but find other mechanisms for it to function. A lot of people want to get rid of the electoral college, but that is tricky because it requires a constitutional amendment and requires the agreement of a lot of states. But there are, there's another movement which I'm really interested in called the National Popular Vote Initiative, which requires, which states can sign on to, which basically says that um, the states will commit to putting all of their electoral college votes to the winner of the popular vote as long as all the states do it at the same time. So it's a, it's a way of maintaining the electoral college vote, but getting rid of the kind of winner-take-all approach to it, which would put us all more on an even keel. The reason why states are willing to sign on to this is because it has this provision like, we're not going to do it by ourselves. We're going to wait till the majority of states do it, and then we're all going to kind of jump into this vote together. I have no idea whether this has any chance of success in terms of changing the way that national politics works, but it's been really interesting to see it grow over the last few years. Something that we discuss a lot in this podcast is obviously like partisanship, polarization, and these bubbles that have kind of formed in a lot of geographical areas because of the dominating political alignments there. And when I was reading your bio on the New School website, I saw that you focus on game theory. And game theory is obviously tracking how, you know, those different elements interact and the outcomes that they result in. So could you maybe talk a little bit from, you know, that kind of like mathematical perspective of how we see polarization happen and how we're seeing it get exponentially, you know, more pervasive and more intense? 
So the area of game theory I work in is actually called cooperative game theory. And it looks at the power that subsets of people have when they vote as a block in situations. So a little bit like the electoral college. And there's some people who've studied things called the bandwagon effect, which basically looks at what are the incentives for politicians to support one another based on a sort of an idea of momentum as a candidate is gaining momentum. They want, they want to get well-known supporters to sort of jo to join them. And there's sort of mathematical analysis to sort of measure how likely it is that another politician would endorse the person who's gaining momentum based on how well they're doing at the moment. So you know, this is a really interesting time right now because we all, as a country, just went through the once every 10 year census. So I don't know how much you've talked about it or how much you followed, but the results of the census just came out this spring. And as a result of the census, the 435 members of the House of Representatives all got reapportioned to the different states based on their populations. And so as a result, New York lost a representative and Texas gained a couple. New Jersey stayed level, thankfully. But then once all of this happens, then all of the different legislative districts have to be redrawn. And you probably you know, know a little bit about gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is this term that people use to suggest that when you draw those little lines to separate out and figure out who's going to represent who, which, which places, you can draw the lines in such a way as to kind of unfairly advantage one party or over another. What that does is if you draw the districts so that basically every district is either kind of solidly Democrat or solidly Republican, what it means is that all of the politicians feel like they have a safe base, meaning like they go to Washington and they figure that all of their, their, all their constituents who they're representing all kind of feel one way. And so they can be increasingly partisan in the way that they um, legislate and campaign and, and so on. So many people would argue that the goal is when you create your districts is really to try to make as many districts competitive as possible meaning that each district should have more like a 50-50 or a 60-40 split among parties, because that way, when you're running for office there, you have to try to appeal to more people rather than just your sort of narrow base. So gerrymandering is one way that people think about that. How can, how can you encourage competitive elections? Gerrymandering is a really interesting subject because there's a lot mm -hmm. of other issues involved. There are a number of requirements that districts have to fulfill they all have to when you draw them they all have to be the same size meaning they have to represent the same number of people and they have to as best they can be compact no one really knows what compact is because in you know with the shapes geography doesn't come very compact so everyone's busy looking at the shapes and thinking mm, that looks really very suspicious that doesn't look very compact to me and look at how wiggly it is and that district must have been gerrymandered but really it might be that the it's just following the line of a river or something so compactness is a tricky one to think about there's requirements because the districts have to meet um, certain requirements from the voting rights act to make sure that certain communities people of color and other kinds of communities have a sort of intact community that they can draw representatives from something we don't really see that often is that direct tie between federal politics really come into local politics. And I remember reading an article when the census results first came out that, you know, Republicans would only need to turn five more Democratic seats in order to gain a House majority. So when we're looking at New York, how does, you know, defining those districts really work, especially in a city 
where it seems like political interests aren't that divided? And how do you see that have an effect on national politics? I'm not sure I know enough about New York local politics to be able to answer precisely what the effects would be. I think it's likely that on the sort of macro scale, since, as you say, New York is largely Democratic and because New York only lost one seat, it seems likely overall there wouldn't be a net effect in terms of the representation from New York to the House of Representatives. But I I think it's more likely to have an impact on some of these swing states where the population is more evenly divided and the fact that they have an opportunity to redraw their districts means that the population, the the Democrat-Republican split could really be affected. Well, after the last census, there was a redistricting in Pennsylvania. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but there was a Republican governor and a Republican state legislature, and they organized the redistricting area for the state uh, representatives. And when when they drew the lines and they had their first state election, there was a very disproportionate result. So when I say disproportionate, I mean, if there were like 60% Democrats in Pennsylvania, then they only won 40% of the seats. I'm I'm making those numbers up because I don't remember right now. So that seemed a marker for most people that the seats were drawn in such a way as to kind of disadvantage the Democrats in Pennsylvania. And so that redistricting plan was challenged at the state Supreme, right up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The redistricting plan was eventually rejected by the Supreme Court, and they were told to to make another one. In that case, it was a little bit, it was unusual because Pennsylvania actually has their own constitution. There was specific language in Pennsylvania that the people who were suing could actually look at and base their legal arguments on. It's harder to do in many other states. Going back to New York, I, I think it is tricky because there, for instance, there's many, many districts in, in New York City. And they've always been a a big balance of different neighborhoods, even spanning across different boroughs. And then trying to sort of figure out how would you redraw those when you have one fewer representative and to think about all the communities of interest that you want to make sure you retain some voting power. If you think about the, let's say, the Asian population in Queens or the Black population in other certain parts of Brooklyn, sort of historic as well as new communities that you might want to sort of keep your your legislative boundaries on. It's a really tricky problem. Actually, really curious about this book that you're working on. So I was wondering if you could talk about that process and uh, just delve into what you're working on with that. So this is a, a book that I'm working on with two colleagues, and it all stems from the 2008 Democratic primary. So in 2008, the Democratic primary went on and on forever. It was Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. It was a very tight race between the two of them. And it was really sort of felt historic because it was either going to be the first black candidate or the first female candidate. And um, there were lots of feelings about it. It was also very tense politically because it got drawn out. And they focused a lot on the delegate count. As the primaries progress, the candidates are all campaigning in the state, and then everyone votes. And then based on the vote, the candidates get a certain number of delegates. But I think, let's say Hillary Clinton got 60% of the vote in New Hampshire. So in theory, she should get 60% of New Hampshire's delegates. And the mathematical question is, New Hampshire has something like 14 delegates in total. And it's a little complicated because they're divided up into districts. But basically, the idea is, like, if you try to calculate 60% of 14 delegates, 
but it doesn't come out as a whole number. And I have to do some rounding or some fudging because everyone needs a whole number of delegates. When there are more than two numbers that you have to round, if you round them the way you're supposed to round them, they don't all add up to the right number. Like you only have 14 delegates. So if you round the way you've been taught to round, you might end up with 14 or you might end up with 15 or you might end up with only 12 or something. So you can't just do that. And so you have to find a fair way to round. And it sounds like such a silly problem, but historically, it's been a big mess. So the, the different methods are called apportionment methods. And um, people have studied this for a really long time because it's the same problem we run into in the House of Representatives. So what I was just talking about with the census, you know, when the states, when, when we did that census, lost a House of Representatives member, you know, we have 435 House of Representatives and every state is supposed to get the proportional share. But you can't, if your proportional share is a fraction, you, you can't have a fractional number of representatives. So it's the same kind of problem. And so I got really interested in the way that the Democrats were doing it. We did a little historical research and found that they use a method that is in the U.S. is called Hamilton's method. It's named after Alexander Hamilton. He proposed an apportionment method to set up the first House of Representatives. And it wasn't used at the time. George Washington vetoed it. It's a whole long story. Um, but at any rate, it's a, it's a very simple method. And so the Democrats use it in all of their state primaries. But one of the tricky things about it is that because of the particular way it's done, it has some anomalies. In the Democratic primary, if it's not 2008, there are probably more candidates running. So just this is last year when we had all of these Democrats running. We had like 16 Democrats running to be the presidential nominee in the Democratic Party. It was wild. Everyone runs and then you vote for your favorite candidate. And then the Democratic Party has this rule that anyone who gets less than 15% of the vote their votes are just um, eliminated. And so that the only candidates who are eligible to get delegates are the ones who've met the 15% threshold. The weird thing about Hamilton's method is if you just calculate how many delegates everyone should have and then calculate how many you should have if after you eliminate candidates, the results can be kind of counterintuitive. Like let's suppose you're a, a strong candidate who meets the 15% threshold. You could actually find that as a result of somebody else being eliminated, your delegate count would actually go down. Later, 2016, when the Republicans had a primary, that's when Donald Trump first became the candidate, there were many, many candidates running. And on the Republican side, it's very, very different because every state does their own thing. All of these different local Republican Party members made up their own methods for how to do the delegates. And many of these methods, they sort of reinvented some methods that were already known, and then they totally made up some others. Long story short, the book that my colleagues and I are working on is a kind of an analysis of all of the different methods that both parties use, and to look at the kind of fairness properties they embody, like do they all have this, this potential to disadvantage someone just because someone else got eliminated? Do they advantage the leading candidates? Do they advantage sort of lower ranked candidates? So we're doing a combination of actually exploring historical elections and running the numbers to see what actually happened, but then looking more from a sort of theoretical end to see how the methods that they're all using, like, are they fair? How do they compare to each other? That's all for today with NextGen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. 
please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for Next Gen Politics.